Our God has been so wild lately. He doesn't seem to listen. He doesn't obey my commands, and we can't even bribe him with treats. He's gotten so out of hand, he may even have to be put down. God is not the problem here. The problem is the people who want to be the leader of the pack. We reintroduce God. We retrain people. You're listening to The God Whisperers. Welcome to the first ever God Whispers program. I'm Craig D'Onofrio, and with me is your co-host, Bill Swirla. Today, I think we're going to get into the small catechism a little bit. Bill will be uh, elucidating for us quite a bit. That's a, elucidating. That's, that's, a, that's a good word. That means talking word. about. Yes, yes. I, uh, I, I went to school and got an edumacation. Uh, I, I guess one of the first things that we want to start with is uh, the most basic things. What is a catechism and where does it come from? Well, you know, I, the, when I hear, I don't know about you, but when I hear that word catechism, my heart starts to race because it involves uh, being locked in a room with a pastor and having to memorize tons of Bible verses and being deprived of play and food until you get it right. You know, it's a, <laughs> sort of a, 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 a 60s form of child abuse. Or something, but uh, catechism, as I understand it, catechism is is like a handbook or uh, uh, just a brief summary, some something uh, uh, that summarizes the Christian faith uh, or that summarizes what we believe, what the Bible teaches. Now, we we as Lutherans, we have the uh, well Martin Luther's small and large catechisms. Uh, what's the history? Where, where, did Martin Luther write the first catechism? Who wrote the first catechism? Do you have any idea how far back it goes in history? Well, cate- catechisms are, are a, that's a that's a medieval book. They, they, if you look at old old uh, medieval catechisms, they're just lists. So you had the the seven deadly sins and the the twelve virtues and things like that, and you just memorize lists. Another way to torture children, you know. But, <laughs> but uh, um, Luther took a different approach. L- Luther saw the catechism as a way to make the Christian faith something that a parent could teach a child. Uh, in fact, each of the sections of the catechism says, as the head of the family should teach his household concerning. And it's concerning the commandments, the creed, the basics of the faith, the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, how to pray, the sacraments, baptism, the Lord's Supper, confession, how to make confession. So these are like the basic tools of, of the Christian faith. And Luther put it in a small and memorable way so parents could teach their children. You know, one of the things that always struck me with this is as the father should teach his family or his children at home. And uh, these days people just drop off their kids to the pastor to educate them. It's almost like, well, they're going to school. I'm not going to teach my kid how to read or math or what one plus one is. I'm just going to drop them off at school. The teachers will do their job. And uh, just like that, the pastor will do his job. Yeah, you know, it, it's like the, the educationists have gotten a hold of the church, too, and it's saying, parents, you're not competent to teach your kids anything about anything. Yeah. And so just, just send them off to the pastor and lock them in a room, deprive them of playing food until they learn this stuff. And, and really, uh, Luther saw it the other way. He, he, he taught the parents who were basically illiterate, so he had to make the thing memorizable so at least the parents didn't look stupid at the kitchen table, you know, so they could memorize the catechism. And then from what they learned from Luther and from their pastors, they could teach their kids and model it at home. So was the idea that uh, the parents would teach kids at home and then at a certain point when the kids had mastered the material to a point – they would uh, then come to the pastor and be examined, or, or how did that work? You know, I, I don't, uh, from what I've read, I don't see any example of there being any, any sort of age at which people were examined or, or these kind of formal examinations. Uh, Luther, at, in 1528, said that people ought to probably be examined once a year 
at least, and he met everybody. And, uh, and so I, I would imagine that at some point, uh, families came in and Luther engaged in conversation with them. And if the kid didn't know the answer, he'd ask the father. And if the father didn't know the answer, he'd track down the grandfather and figure out where it went <laughs> wrong, you know? So uh, I'd like to actually reestablish that today. That'd be a, that'd be a lot of fun. It's, it's just, if the kid can't answer, go track down dad and see what's going on with him. He ended up at, down can, at the cemetery digging him. it up. Yeah, right. <laughs> You know, one of the things that I do is I give the kids in my church uh, a written exam at the end of confirmation class. I, you know, as kind of the granddaddy, we don't do the public examination like you old timeies do. Uh, instead, I give them a written exam. It's true, false, multiple choice, fill in the blank, short answers, so forth and so on. But I always like to give it to the parents every few years also. And it's amazing how I, I the kids have to have 70% minimum to pass. Mm-hmm. And I think... I haven't had too many parents do better than 50% on the test. So it's really horrifying the state of education of, uh, of most people sitting in the pews these days. Well, you know, and that's the thing is, is church education and education in general, they're going to track together. So there's no memorization going on in schools, so you're not going to get much memorization going yeah. on in church. And uh, if you don't have a high standard of, of learning in school, then – there's going to be a very low expectation also in church too, and uh, uh, you're a lot more rigorous than I am. I don't I don't give out any written exams anymore. Right? <laughs> well, yeah, but you drag the kids up front and embarrass the crud out of them. I right? used to. I we don't we don't, don't do, do that we, now. We don't do the public embarrassment anymore. Those were fun though. I'm telling you right now that that was that was good times in church. We you know the whole Lent. Let the shaming begin. Well, yeah, no, we did it every every Wednesday. Every Wednesday, we did a different part of the catechism. We'd haul the kids up in front Wednesday evening in the Lenten service and. And I warned the elders that if the kids didn't know the answer, I was going to ask the elders to explain Ooh. it to them. Ooh. So those guys were studying. There was there was serious study going on, and and it really gave a nice penitential character to all of Lent. I, I really, you know, there was, <laughs> there was a certain sackcloth and ashes character to the whole thing. Knowing so, what is to come. Yeah, I may be reviving that again. Those were, those, were, those were some of the better days. The glory days. So when we get into the catechism, where do you like to start? Well, I think uh, – First thing is just kind of overview. Just just sort of look at how it's all put together because there's an internal logic to the thing. Okay. You know, and, and that is that the, the catechism is really three chief parts. I named them before. Ten Commandments, the, the Creed, the Apostles' Creed, and the Lord's Prayer. This, this is kind of Christianity 101. So God's law, what he expects of us, how we're sinners, why we are in need of salvation. Uh, part two, the Creed, who God is, his Father, Son, and Holy Spirit what he does in terms of being our creator, our redeemer in the Son, and the one who makes us holy by forgiving us. And then also the, uh, the Lord's Prayer and, and how to pray out of, out of faith. And so uh, that's, those, are your, those are your basic uh, three parts. Uh, beyond that, then, are the, uh, is holy baptism and uh, confession absolution and the Lord's Supper, which is uh, these are all ways in which what Christ has won on the cross are, is delivered to us, you know, how we receive what Christ has won. And then finally, the last part, uh, the, and a lot of times those are just uh, completely ignored, but the last part on daily prayer and also uh, the Christian responsibilities, what Christian vocation looks like, Christian's life in the world. And so uh, when we start a catechism, you start at the beginning, start at, the, at the, the Ten Commandments and work through those, and then the next part, next part, and... 
I always like to start with the uh, what the hearers owe their pastors part. Well, that's a good part, too. I use that in the adult classes. That's that's particularly important, you know, when it comes down to the laborer being worthy of his hire. You know? Right, that's right. one of my favorite Bible passages. Just before that annual church council meeting when yes. they're going to vote a raise or no raise or uh, taking away money or whatever they do. That's right. But, uh, but I, think we should, I think we ought to just uh, launch with the Ten Commandments. Yeah, let's do that. But let, let's start with a basic understanding of law and gospel because I think that's kind of a good preface for the Ten Commandments, don't you think? I guess. <laughs> or not. <laughs> or not. Uh, law and gospel, that's a very Lutheran way of speaking. Wow. You know, I'm I mean, and, sorry. And, you know, I, I'm not going to hold it against you. That but, darn uh, Concordia Seminary yeah, did that, it to me. I can't help it. it. Yeah. But, uh, well, yeah, law and gospel. I mean, well, how, do you, how do you articulate the law and the gospel? That, that's That's... I use that word again. See, I got it from you now. Art- articulate. How, Art- how do you articulate? Well, I said elucidate earlier. Oh, okay. Elucidate, yeah. Uh, well, first thing is that the law condemns us. The law uh, always accuses us, we're told. And so the law is that which has, well, let's start back. The three uses of the law, and we have that curb which keeps society in check. Uh, so the law, you know, pretty much every culture says don't kill someone or don't take another guy's wife or he'll beat you up or, you know, so forth and so on. So the curb kind of keeps society in check a little bit. Now, today, maybe not, but in past years. It all depends uh, how high the curb is, you know. <laughs> they set the curb low, people drive well, over it. Yeah, so. and if it comes to the California Supreme Court, there seems to be no, no curb at all. So. Yeah, so, uh, <laughs> uh, so then the second use is that what we like to call the mirror. It shows us our sin. It shows us that we're a bunch of rejects and retards before God and that we're totally in a state of need. It shows us our need for salvation and our need for a Savior. And then the third use is, uh, well, see, this one's up for a debate now, isn't it? Because uh, the third use, they, they like to say it's a rule, a, a kind of a measuring stick. You know, how am I doing? But I contend that by the time that we get there, the answer is always not so good. And so it, it, it's, it's not so much a measuring stick as far as I'm concerned, as much as a wall that you run into that just bounces you back to the second use and shows you your need. Now, as Christians, we need to know what it is that we're supposed to be uh, aspiring to it shows us God's holiness, and so I guess in that sense we could call it a rule. You're looking at me like I'm crazy. Well, I'm just kind of staring at you, kind of <laughs> babbling there. But you know, rule. I I always learn guide where where it's not so much that you measure how you're doing or how your Christian life, your walk with Jesus is going, but it's it's basically a reference to say, look, I want to do God's will, but I have no clue as to what it is. So somebody please inform me. Give me give me a give me some give me a guide as to what is pleasing to God. And the 10 commandments serve that purpose too. Who would have guessed? Things like honoring your father, not stealing your neighbor's property. This is holiness, you know. In in God's eyes, these these are holy things. I've got to catch off right there. We got to take a break. Stay tuned. You're listening to God Whispers. We'll be right back. Hey, welcome back to the God Whispers. We're talking about the small catechism, Lutheran small catechism, uh, Martin Luther, uh, the Ten Commandments, 
and uh, I kind of got us off into law and gospel before we took a break. We went down there. I, that it's thing. my fault. That's okay. That's, I, I love my tangents. You do, I and and uh, but but this law and gospel distinction. This, this is really this this is I think a Lutheran distinctive. This is uh, other people do it. And, I know the Calvinators and, like to to law and gospel. Well, yeah, and, 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 and I've heard a lot of people do it, and the best people do it inadvertently, that they're just they're following the text of the Scripture, and they're either speaking clearly of God's promises in Christ or God's demands under the law, and they're just, they're just doing that proper distinction of the law and the gospel. They don't even realize they're doing it. Uh, but I think it's a Lutheran distinctive to highlight it and point it out and talk about it and say this is this is critical to understanding the bible that you have to distinguish what god does in christ from what god expects us to do okay all right well, and so and you know 10 commandments are law they are what god expects us to do except they're always built around a gift from, gift from God. So there's there's always some chewy nougat center in the Ooh, commandments. Uh, well, too, you know? so what you're saying is there's gospel smattered in the law? What I'm saying is that though they're distinguished, you can never divide them. So you can't <laughs> you can't go through your Bible with a green highlighter and say this is all law and a red highlighter and say this is all gospel. That that the word of God is this kind of twofold word. It's got a double edge. Like the Bible says it's a double edged sword. <laughs> so it's it's one one edge of that sword is law. Killing, accusing, calling you a sinner, telling you you're dead, damned before God, and the other edge is gospel, telling you that God has saved sinners in Christ, and that uh, you know Christ is the one who justifies the ungodly. It's funny that a lot of times when when you proclaim the gospel to people, it it either relieves or condemns. Also, yeah, a lot of people hear the gospel: Jesus Christ died to take away your sins. He he paid that sacrifice on the cross. He rose from the dead three days later, ascended into heaven, and gives you the promise that your sins are forgiven, that you're going to rise from the dead, that you're going to go to heaven. And some people start ripping their hair out and gnashing their teeth as though you're condemning them. Yeah, well, there's even the sentence in the, in the Lutheran Confessions. I think it's in the, the, uh, the Salad Declaration where it says that the sentence, Christ died for your sins, is a frightful word of law. And everybody thinks, well, what's that about? Because that, this, this should be good news. Uh, however, when you when you hear it in that sense, it's this is how bad you are, that the second person of the Holy Trinity had to become human flesh, take on human flesh, suffer and die in order to save you. That's how bad our sins are. So that is, in in a sense, a word of law. It's also the ultimate word of gospel, that the Son of God died in your place to save you. Hmm. So they're, they're distinguishable, but they're not divisible. And I think the big mistake people make is they make two buckets and they say, this is law, all law, this is gospel, yeah. all gospel. Where really, yeah, I think you sort of hinted at it, people can hear what you intended as a word of gospel as a word of law. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and, and also then, you know, the flip side is, though a commandment is going to have, it's going to basically be a word of law, what you should do or not do. Still, there's a gift in there. God doesn't just make up rules. He's not like some crazy parent in heaven says, oh, let me make up some rules they can't keep. <laughs> but, but instead, he's got a gift to give. You know, example, um, the commandment that you shall not commit adultery. It's not, a, it's not just about not doing something, just say no, but it's about embracing the gift of sex, marriage, family as God's gift and using the gift rightly. I always laugh with that one because uh, when I was in Connecticut pastoring a church out there, 
I had a, a little kid who was about 11 years old in confirmation class, and I said, well, tell me about the Sixth Commandment. He says, well, that says you shouldn't get jiggy with anyone but your wife. Nice. <laughs> where, where, where did he learn that? Get jiggy he, with it. He, he <laughs> learned that from his father. You see, that's, that's the way it should work. Well, let, let's look at the Ten Commandments proper here, and uh, we'll, we'll read uh, Luther's explanations as well. and we, we can find the law and the promise in all of these. Let, let's see what we can find out. First Commandment. You shall have no other gods. What does this mean? We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Well, the law there is pretty clear. We should have no other gods. That includes ourselves. That includes our big screen TV, our Porsche, uh, our wives, our uh, girlfriends, our dog, whatever. Uh, But ultimately, you shall have no other gods. The condemnation is you because you're the one putting everything before God. And so you're the God of your own heart and you're turned in on yourselves this way. What's the, what's the, the promise? Or if you want to talk about that, you know, well, the gift, fire away. the gift in the middle of the commandment, you know, to spring out what I was saying before that every commandment has inside of it, some gift of God. The gift is God himself. God wants to be your God and he does not want any competition. In fact, I like the Hebrew of this uh, better than the English, and it, you know, as it is in Exodus and I, Deuteronomy. I forgot my Hebrew. You shall have no other gods <laughs> in my face. Yeah, to my face, yeah. Yeah, that's right, or in my presence, but literally in my face. The way we used to say in Chicago, you know, get out of my face! <laughs> is, is God, God hates false gods, and he's jealous. He, he will not... He, he, he does not tolerate any competition for our affections. He wants us all to himself. And so the gift really here is the gift of God. He wants us all to himself, and he wants to be God for us alone. And so uh, the center of this commandment is really God himself, which Luther said this commandment is the heart of all commandments. Right. Where this one is kept, all of them are kept. Where this one's broken, there's no hope of keeping any of them. Yeah, I always say if you can keep this one, the others will be a piece of cake. Yeah. <laughs> now, the killer here is that and, – and I'm going to introduce this idea right off the bat is that Luther, I think, when he takes these commandments, he takes – he pushes them further and deeper – than their original context go. You can see that in some of the other commandments down the road. But even this one, what's forbidden? Forbidden is idolatry. Yeah. Like uh, when Israel built the golden calf or or the Baals or the Ashtaroths or all those other things that plagued Israel in the Old Testament. That's what's forbidden in this commandment. But Luther seems to go way beyond that to the heart so that what defines idolatry is fear, love, and trust. Those are the defining verbs. That's, that's how you identify your, and your, your idols, and that goes on in the heart. I always have a hard time explaining fear in this sense to, to the folks in my church. Uh, it's not just I should fear God because he could squish me like a bug, although that is part of it. That is part of you it. You know, he has the power of life and death and salvation and damnation and so forth and so on. That That's all in his purview. But I I think Luther meant something more than that also, did he not? Or, or I'm, well, I I'm think, trying to remember how that works out. I, I think – and you notice fear and love – carry on throughout all the commandments. Yeah. They become kind of the defining verbs. But but uh, fear, you think of the Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Right. And and so so that's more of a positive aspect of fee, fear, where you talk about awe, respect, 
kind of the, the Moses experience. He encounters Christ in the burning bush, and it's not put up your feet, you know, kick it off, take it easy, but take your shoes off, dude, you're on holy ground. Why don't we do that anymore? Yeah, well, <laughs> it's not a bad thing. I'm, I'm always about curious about what, that. What, taking shoes off in church? Yeah, I mean, you're on holy ground. Why? What, you know, why did God tell Moses to take his shoes off, but he doesn't tell us? I'm just curious. Well, he didn't, never know. told anybody else to take their shoes I, off. I, either, I didn't see it anywhere else. Kind of, but I, As I, if Moses should have known. I, I think I think there's a, there's an element of of certainly fear, dread, terror that he could crush me like a bug. Oh yeah, you know Jesus says, "Don't fear the one who can destroy the body, right? But fear rather the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell." That's God. Yeah, and the beauty is, if you fear God, there's nothing left to fear because who's greater than God? Yeah, yeah. and and think about I, I think about this. I think fear is really a key component because fear is what paralyzes people. People can't get off square one, all kinds of things in their life because they're afraid. They're afraid of failure. They're afraid of uh, criticism. They're afraid of judgment. Uh, Jesus told a parable of a, of a guy, you know, he gave out money to different servants and said, go do business. And they came back and some were more profitable, some less. And then there's the guy who brings his coin back all shiny new. He had it, he had it wrapped up in a handkerchief, yeah, stuck in a drawer. And he says, here it is. And, and, and the master says, well, what's this about? And he goes, well, I know. I was afraid of you because you're you're a harsh master. Yeah, you're a tough you, guy. Yeah, you're a tough guy. You exact this for that, you know. And and he didn't want to blow it. He was afraid, and he's the one who gets condemned. You know, uh, speaking of fear like this, one of the things that always cracks me up is a few years back it was angels this and angels that and angels, angels, angels. But if you look in Scripture, anytime anyone's met face to face with an angel, they just do a face plant and they're you know shaking in their boots and you know. Sp- spoiling their shorts and you know i mean it's just awful well it's like in the and, christmas story what's what's the first word from the angel in the christmas story you're not you're not why do they say that <laughs> they're afraid yeah. <laughs> they're, yeah they're going oh man because none of them had dry diapers that's at that right point. that's right and, and so you know we oh angels and those are just are angels so cute yeah and that's that's the point that i'm going for here is that these are just angels these are god's messengers his servants and you know people are terrified of these guys how much more, you know, would we just completely lose our minds if we were face-to-face with God? The Bible even says we couldn't survive it. So, you know, I, I think that's what's missing in a lot, of, um, a lot of modern worship or contemporary worship is the fear of the Lord. That, that you know, yes, what, whatever happened to the Moses thing of take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. You're right. in the presence of the creator of the universe. And and uh, a lot of a lot of what amounts to contemporary worship has has very little notion of awe and mystery and just abject fear that we're in the presence of something far greater than mm. we are. We're in the pre- we, you know the creature has met his or her creator, and that is a, a frightful experience. Well, we'll pick up with the second commandment when we come back after this break. Stay tuned. Hey, welcome back to the God Whispers. When we went for the break, 
I said that we go on to the second commandment too fast, totally jump the gun. Oh, way too fast. I, did, I didn't we I I didn't let him finish. This is this is catechesis. He had more man. to say. This is, I, yeah, oh, this, <laughs> so, this I'm could in go trouble. on literally forever. I, yeah, I, I know you, it does also. <laughs> <laughs> so anything else to say about fear? I'm I'm out. I don't know about you, but I'm I'm pretty frightened at this point and uh just really I, I think other other than the fact that I when when you look at how how people however they approach God and the culture, fear is not one of the things we want to deal with. Um, you know, and you think about all the things we do fear. We're afraid of death. We're afraid of poverty. We're afraid of the loss of our reputation or our jobs. And uh, think of how much we are willing to do to sacrifice to um, avoid those things, or to have have you know avoid death, cheat out death. And uh, and that's a diagnosis of our idolatry, that when we fear God, then there's literally nothing, including death, left to fear. Does it seem like God? we we tend to fear the devil more than God? Yeah. Is that idolatry? Yeah. It's 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 messed up priorities. Yeah. We ought to mock the devil at every turn. That's why I like Halloween. To a certain extent, I like Halloween as a as a day just to kind of give the finger to the devil. Well, Luther used to fart and say that one's That's for you. That's right. He'd throw ink <laughs> bottles at the devil and he'd fart at the devil. And in fact, he talked about the devil in 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 terms like we would talk about some pesky dog down the street. Wow. And 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 I think that's putting things in the right perspective. We alternately don't take the devil seriously enough, or we take him too seriously. Yeah. And 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 I think the fear of the Lord brings everything into perspective. It it, it kind of brings the stuff because it, it's it's fear, love, and trust in God above all things. It doesn't say there aren't other fears, there aren't other loves or trust, but it's above all things. No thing gets fear, love, and trust that God does. Yeah, you know, uh, not to get stuck on the devil, but uh, they, there are these preachers that do all sorts of crazy stuff. They fly over various cities and try and cast the devil out. And, you know, they, they give the devil way too much authority, like he's omniscient, you know, all-powerful, all-knowing, and, and know the devil's going to read your mind, and there's a demon out of the corner of your eye and hiding behind every bush and so forth and so on. And it seems like we get so worked up and so fearful of the devil that we make him as powerful or even more powerful than God in our minds. And that certainly seems like a, a violation, not only of this commandment, but other commandments to boot as far as, uh, you know, especially God's name is not sacred enough that way. But, you know, this this kind of devil fear can also turn, I think, some people into devil worshipers because if the devil's as powerful then maybe he's the alternate deity. Since Christianity didn't work for me, let's check out the devil. Or just simply that that out of the fear of of that realm, you are paralyzed, and therefore you're giving him much more power yeah. than he has. The power the devil has is the lie yeah. that God's not true to his word. Don't trust God. You can figure it out for yourself. That's That's the big thing is he's a liar. But you're right. I mean, we give him all the attributes of God. And uh, he isn't. He's a creature of God. I think uh, the devil's advocate, Al Pacino, is probably one of the best portrayals of the devil. Don't let your children watch it at home. But uh, <laughs> for you adults, late night, lock the door. There's some nudity. But uh, uh, definitely, I think, a pretty, pretty decent approach. Anyway, let's get back to the first commandment. I, love I got a far afield. Love yeah, and love trust. and trust. Love, love and trust. Yeah, now, those are, those are nicer verbs. Love. I love God. You know, and yet, and yet, uh, the the commandment or the commandment says, "Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength." Uh, 
um, that's a pretty uncompromised love and doesn't leave any room for competition. I, I kind of have, I have a problem when people say, uh, I love the Lord and then I love my family and I love my, you know, my work and my pets. And they kind of go down the, down the line like that as if God was number one on my list and then family two and work three. And yeah, that that's, kind of, that's excludes kind of like the all, yeah, <laughs> all it, your heart, all your soul. And, and yeah, <laughs> for some reason it's kind of parceling them out. And, and, and I love how the all works. So God gets 90 minutes on Sunday. And then work gets, uh, you know, 8, 10, 12 hours a week, five days a week, whatever that works out to. And the family gets whatever the family gets. So, so it doesn't quite work, you know. Yeah. And, and, and I think what this is, is this is this is making God one of your pantheon. So you have a, a list of gods, and he's the number one God, so that's cool. And that's not what this commandment is saying. I think what this commandment is saying is that God is the center. He's the huh. center of all your love. So whatever you love, God is at the center of it. Okay. And if God's not at the center of it, then you are loving an idol. So are you saying that uh, I love my wife in God or in Christ? That's right. That's uh, right. And I, I love my dog in Christ. And how, how do I yeah, hopefully, dog in yeah, Christ? <laughs> properly understood, of course. Yeah. But, but the, and, and, and receive all these things as gifts from God. But, but if God isn't at the center of those relationships, if I can talk about you know relationship with your dog, but... There is a, some. My dog is the purest friend I have. I've met your dog. Yeah, and, and he he's is also he's very a, neurotic and a little ADD. He is, but but, but he is a cool dog, and and but but he can only be. You can only have this. I can't believe I'm talking about you and your. Dog. <laughs> but but God is at the center of all of it because God is the creator of all of it. You know, and and His Word is what holds everything together. And anything that doesn't have God at the center is is going to be an idol. By the way, Rufus, if you're at home listening to this, Daddy loves you. Nice. Yeah. And, and so uh, <laughs> Rufus has been acknowledged. Rufus, yes. And yes. then and then trust. You know, trust is trust. I think is is the thing that really diagnoses where we are when we lose all of our props when we get our feet kicked out from under us. So so Luther says when uh, when when we're bereft of our money, we act as if there is no God. Yeah. And I, I see. I think I think there's a typo. It wasn't in God we trust. It was in gold we trust. And they just, <laughs> typo. Yeah, there's a typo at the mint. You know, when they, when they put I, that in. I, I don't want to get all experiential here and everything, but it seems that at the times in my life where things just really sucked, and there seemed to be no, you know, no no level lower than where I was. It seems that those are the times that I was most dependent on God. That those are the times where it's like I despaired of all hope. All, you know, anything. And I basically at that point would say, you know what, God, you, you clean up the mess because I can. I'm just kind of stuck here and, and uh, I'll let you clean up the mess. And so, you know, when we're bereft of hope, I don't know if that's the time when we tend to apostasy. I think some turn to and some turn from. You know, the book of Job kind of messes around with that because Job has everything. He's got he's got beautiful daughters, he's got wonderful sons, great family, lots of land and sheep and everything else. And then God allows the devil to just take away one layer of stuff after another, his family, his wealth, his health. The only thing he can't touch is his life. And the whole the whole wager in the book of Job is Job trusts God because God's been really good to him. Right. Now the question is, will Job trust God when God doesn't appear good to him? Right. 
And and the answer to the book is yes, he does. Yeah, though he slay me, I will bless him. Yeah, yeah. And and that's but and that's the nature of faith. But but it's like what you're saying is everything gets knocked out from under him, and there's still God, and he will not curse God and die like his his wife suggests that he does. Yeah. So it's trust is but something. He does question God though. He questions, and but, then God slaps him silly. No, he did. Hey, gird up like, your loins. Were you there when I made all this stuff? Were you there when I created the deeds? He takes him to school, there? but uh, <laughs> and really more his friends. Yes, I mean Job's friends are they're jerks. Well, they're like all of us. Yeah, I, I, I love this comment. I don't want to get off on uh, on the book of Job here, but I love this comment. Yeah, that, why not? That that when his three friends came and they sat with him for seven days and said nothing, that was the best thing they ever did. For yeah. Him. Yeah. But it was at the end of that week when they opened their yaps and started talking theology to Job and were telling Job, if you get right with God, God will get right with you. That was the end of it. Then you get 36 chapters of dribble. Now, to go further far afield on this, uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, uh, Grief Observed is basically a journal after his wife died. Mm. And uh, he, he talks about exactly what Job experiences. He says, you know, I want my friends near me, but I don't want them to talk to me. But right. I, I need them there, but I, I, they can't say anything that's going to help me. So pour me a drink, buy me a cigar, and just sit with keep, me. Keep and me company let me wallow. and don't say a word. And, and above all, don't try to explain what God is doing. Yeah. That's, that's the, or what I could have done to fix the situation. Yeah, yeah. Well, you get this. <laughs> do, you get this do you get this when you go and, and you visit people in the hospital, and they're there kind of by surprise? And, and it's like... The what's God trying to teach me, or what did I do to deserve this? Yeah, and yeah. and the answer is probably nothing. Maybe he's teaching someone else. Yeah, that's right. Maybe <laughs> maybe he's teaching me. I don't know. You know, but probably nothing. And and an explanation is really not the way of trust. Trust is like Job never got a decent explanation for his suffering. Right. He got a couple of chapters of Were you there? And if I explained it to you, you wouldn't understand. But he never really gets an explanation. At the end of the book, he repents of all the stupid things he said. And he repents for his friends, too. And and then he gets this kind of resurrection, restoration. Right. Thing yeah, the, the perk story got everything restored and then some. But we shouldn't bank on that this side of the grave. Right. As, yeah. and, and, and so the real question is, yeah, we trust God when it's going good. But how about when it's going really bad, when it's, when it's just all gone, the floods washed away your house, and, and, and then, then you say, uh, yeah, I trust God. <laughs> well, uh, we got to take another break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Stay tuned. Okay, we're back, and uh, Bill was going on something about the First Commandment and something Velcro, about and commandment. I don't know. but uh, Fear, love, trust. Uh, you know, the thing that strikes me about this is these are not things you do. They're verbs, but they're not. Th- these are more conditions of the heart. Uh, you really can't, you can't see fear. You see the result of fear. You see the, the, the actions that, that coincide with love or trust or something like that. Although in Jerry Maguire, the little boy says that dogs and bees can smell fear for what that's worth. Smelling fear is, is – that's still, that's, that's still a, uh, an effect of fear. 
I've been very afraid, and I think people could smell me afterwards too. But well, then you must be afraid a lot because I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm smelling something across yeah, the well, table here. But it's... the but the idea though is that that this is the condition of the heart before God. You know, one of the, I like to think of the heart's like it's like the the hooked end of Velcro. If you uh, if you pull that apart from the the fuzzy end, it'll stick to anything: sweaters, upholstery, you know, you name it. The heart unbuckled from God will latch on to anything and make it a God. Luther said the heart's an idol factory. It just cranks out idols. Isn't that the truth? And so um, – Gosh, that reminds me of Oprah. Is, uh, her latest thing with that Eckhart Tolle guy. I don't know if you're familiar with that no. at all. Yeah, there's some some guy. Oprah uh, apparently grew up Baptist and she had some bad experiences and – uh, she had a, a crazy preacher that said some off stuff, and so she just kind of rejected Jesus out of hand, and and uh, now she's latched onto this new guru Eckhart Tolle, and he's all about the old New Agey God within uh, kind of nonsense. But you know, hey, if I can make myself into a god, then who needs a, a god who's a creator? And that's God what, within, yeah, that's that's that was Luther's uh, the the self turned inward, yeah. And that's how he defines our condition, our fallen condition, is we're, we're in this sort of spiritual fetal position where we're, we're all balled up in ourself. All curved in. All curved, curved yeah. inward. And, and the whole notion is in, in order to get back into right relationship, either with God or with anybody else, is we have to get uncurled. We have to be turned inside out again. And that means that all that fear, love, and trust has to be properly <laughs> directed. There's a, a phrase that I like to... I, I coined it myself. I'm going to copyright it and make a million dollars off of this, but uh, maybe not. If it's about you, it's not about Jesus. And if it's not about Jesus, it's not Christian. And uh, that's kind of the question at hand. Is it is my faith about me or is my faith in the object that it should cling to? And that's Jesus Christ. Is it curved in on me or is it looking out externally to where uh, my salvation comes from? You know, that's a good point because these verbs, fear, love, and trust, these are all directed to an object. You mm-hmm. fear something. You love something. You right. trust something. Yeah. And and faith is that way too. Faith, trust, believes something or someone. But it's outside of oneself. And uh, all the all the, the new spirituality, which is nothing more than, than the old Gnosticism and, you know, the old stuff that was spooking around, you know, basically turns you inward. And says your God is inside of you. Yeah, you are your God, and so it directs everything back in, which is precisely our problem: is we're all turned inward on ourselves. Um, this commandment also, you, I, you, you can't you can't use this commandment to improve or measure anything. How's your fear of the love, fear of the Lord going? <laughs> you know? well, I'm really fearing God today, man. Uh, I don't know. I'm very concerned about you. I'm not sensing fear in your life. Yeah, yeah. You don't. You need more fear. This is really this. I think this is a good illustration of how the commandment works as as a mirror to reflect back and diagnose. Really, a diagnostic mirror, where we look at our own lives and we say, you know, I'm a mess. That no, I don't fear God above all things. In fact, I fear all things above God. Yeah, I don't love God above all things. In fact, I love all things above God. I don't trust God above all things. I trust anything before God. You know, do you think that this kind of plays into the whole, uh, well, Jesus, Buddha, Confucius, well, you know, it's all the same and, you know, uh, one's as good as another and that sort of thing. You think that that's just kind of the 
curving in, I don't need God as much as he needs me kind of thing? Or or, or is that just something different? You know, I, I heard I, know. I was talking to a guy a couple of weeks ago, a fellow pastor, and he had an interesting take on some of this. Yeah. That, and especially with regard to Buddha and Buddhism and stuff. He'd done some reading. And his conclusion was that Buddhism is the natural, that is the logical outcome of natural theology. So okay. that if, if all you know about God is what you can discern from reasoning through your observation of nature mm. and, and how people are and everything else, that this is basically what you're going to come to. You're going to come to some kind of conclusion that, that God is there somewhere and you have to kind of find your path and work toward God. But it's, it's, it's the logical outcome of natural theology. And in that, a lot of religions are going to have, they're going to see things in common. Yeah. I, but it's, I see it's a the lot revealed of... part that distinguishes things. Once God starts talking, once, starts, once God starts speaking to us and telling us who he is and telling us who we are, then, then natural theology has to kind of be silent and step aside. I see a lot of Christian apologetics not being Christian enough in that, you know, I'm going to prove to an atheist that there is a God, and I'm going to prove intelligent design, and I'm going to prove a uh, uh, young earth, I'm going to prove this, I'm going to prove that. And it seems all that they're really doing is taking away the false God, but not refilling that with a proper God. So Which has it, its place. It seems that most – I'm not. maybe I shouldn't even say most, but a lot of apologists – that don't have a real good grounding in the true gospel, what the gospel really is, are good at making deists, but maybe not necessarily Christians. Well, yeah, some people talk about the difference between apologetics and evangelism. Where, you know, apologetics is, that's basically destruction. So it, it, in apologetics, so you, you basically show somebody that what they believe in or what they say they don't believe in is just inconsistent, irrational, they haven't thought it through. Uh, but it doesn't fill – it just empties everything. It doesn't fill it with anything. And right. you're right. Unless, unless, yeah. you, unless you have something to fill that void, you're either going to create one desperate atheist or at best a, a kind of a marginal deist. And that kind of goes back to the law and gospel thing. The law shows you your need and the gospel is the fulfillment of your needs. But if you don't have a clear explanation of the gospel – you, you're going to create a Buddhist or or a Jew or a, or something else. You know, you're you're going to create something that says I have to grasp to a God. I, I need a God now, uh, but this one who dies on a cross, I don't know about him. He seems a little weird to me. You know that 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 can't be a real God. What kind of God would would die a, a criminal's death when he didn't do anything wrong? That so maybe. Uh, I should seek out true enlightenment and become part of the ethereal being that, that is the cosmic God. One. And yeah, yeah, that that stuff. <laughs> but that is an attempt to fill the void. Yes. And and uh, see the the thing about God with regard to the Bible or with regard to the commandments is God is is presupposed at the outset. In fact, the sentence that comes before the first commandment is is God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Right. Therefore, you shall have no other gods. Yeah, I asked. So uh, he's at the front end. He he tells us who he is, and and it's not a negotiable. Uh, our common professor Horace Hummel. Uh, I saw him not too long ago, and I asked him. I said, Doctor Hummel, I'm I'm really confused 
uh, because uh, Lutherans number the Ten Commandments one way, Calvinists number them another way. I, I said uh, may, maybe the Jews, since they had them first, may, maybe they know how to number them. How do they number them? He says, oh, they do it completely different. They start out with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out that's of Egypt. Right. Well, that's not a commandment, but you well, know, you got to remember the ten called, words, yeah, the, it's not even the Decalogue. The Ten Commandments right. is the ten words, the first word being the introduction of who the great king is. I am the Lord your God. Yeah, so that leaves us back in a lurch as to uh, Calvinists, Lutherans, Romeo, who's who's got the numbering right? Who knows? Who cares? Uh, ultimately, it all comes down to pretty much the same commandments, just uh, uh, two are compiled into one, either on the front or the back end, it seems. so. But well, anyway. the, the hitch to that, though, is that they, they get the second commandment in, as you shall not have any graven, make any graven images. Right. Um, and so... And we agree to worship. We shouldn't. Well, that's right. I, we would acknowledge that that is a an explanation, and it's a it's under that heading of the first commandment. That's what 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 we call coarse idolatry. Right. Make an image, bow down, and worship it. Well, not many people in Western culture actually have a little idol in their house these days. That. Uh, it's you coming know. back in vogue. I thought Precious Moments collections were... Oh, those children scare me with their giant heads. <laughs> <laughs> Terrifying. Your little household gods. You know, you have that that uh, that chest of household gods there. I was in a, a Christian bookstore in St. Louis that will not be named, although it is affiliated with uh, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. And uh, they had a Precious Moments child stapled to a cross... And I picked it up and I said, did this little girl die for your sins? And one of my friends was there. He's horrified because I'm just screeching in the that middle really of the That really is horrifying. Yeah. It is funny. Yeah. <laughs> it was, you would have laughed if you were there. Uh, so anyway, we're, we're almost out of time here. Uh, uh, I'm out. Uh, anything left uh, on the First Commandment in the last 30 seconds here? Well, I, I, think, I think if you, again, Luther's point that if this commandment is kept, that if the, the – heart is holy in the fear, love, and trust in God, then all the other commandments are just automatic. And that they aren't automatic, you know, as we go down the list, you'll see how we mess up in all of them all the time. That is the evidence that the heart is not naturally right with God, and it's God who has to rescue us. There you have it. Well, come back and join us next time as we talk about the small catechism, theology, pretty much anything that comes to our minds, all sorts of crazy stuff. On the God Whispers.